Good evening, it's a pleasure to be with you as always. Great to come up again and to bring God's word to the dear saints here at Harvest. I give greetings from uh, the folks at Kalamazoo. And uh, I uh, uh, just want to say that even during such a bizarre time, a trying time for all of us, it's really great to be able to uh, come and minister uh, for a moment to another congregation and, remem- and remind uh, each other that we're in this together. And uh, more than being in it together, uh, we're in it with Christ. And he goes before us, behind us. He is with us all the way. So uh, hopefully uh, a guest minister just by me being here can remind us of that, of that gospel good news, that Jesus is with us and that he does not forsake his church and that he will restore us. That's the theme of tonight's text from Psalm 126. Turn there in your Bibles, if you will. Um, Will it be thrown up here, perhaps? I'm not sure. Okay, so then turn in your Bibles to Psalm 126. Uh, Psalm 126 is one of the songs of ascents. It's a really fascinating portion of the Psalter, probably my favorite portion of the Psalter. Fifteen songs nestled towards the end of this book that were used by... um, uh, Israelites as they made their pilgrimage to the holy city Jerusalem. These were the songs uh, for pilgrims, songs that they sang as they uh, encouraged themselves along the way, making an arduous, sometimes dangerous journey. Uh, they often have themes of, of worship because they're anticipating being within the, the gates of Jerusalem and to offer up uh, praise and worship in the, in the temple. Um, the, the text that we're going to look at, as we'll note shortly, uh, seems, to be, uh, t- seems to have been written Uh, in the time after the exile. And so this isn't just a return to Jerusalem on one of the uh, yearly feast uh, occasions, but actually a return to Jerusalem after uh, decades of of being in captivity. And so we're going to look at that this evening. Psalm 126. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion... We were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's ask God's blessing now. Our Father, as we have read your word, we do ask that your spirit would illumine our hearts to receive this word. And as it is now preached, Lord, we ask that we would hear your voice that the voice of your servant would recede into the shadows as it were, and that you would place before us the word incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, would we see him, would we hear him? In this time of study, in this time of diving into your revelation, Lord, our sincere prayer is that those things that we know not, you would teach us that which we have not, you would graciously grant us and give us, and most importantly, Lord, what we are not, would you by your spirit's sanctifying power make us? And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
Well, in her autobiography, American novelist Ellen Glasgow eulogizes her father, who was a Presbyterian minister, by saying this. He was entirely unselfish, and in his long life, he never once committed a pleasure. I do believe that she says that rather tongue-in-cheek, but uh, there are many people who do think that there is some correlation between uh, rigidness and righteousness, right? The more austere, the more severe, the more serious, the more sanctified. Uh, that can be uh, further from the truth, though. Uh, we know, true believers know, that it is impossible to grow in grace, to grow in the knowledge of God, to grow in our relationship with Christ, and to still be gloomy. Happiness, happiness is one of the marks of a true Christian. Even when we go through difficulties in life, and we will go through difficulties in life, and let me guess, I, I think you're all going through a difficulty in life right now. Even though we go through trials, even as we make uh, our pilgrimage through a world of sin and suffering, here's, here's the idea. The reality of the gospel far outweighs all of that and produces in our hearts happiness and joy. That's what we learned from Psalm 126. As I've said, it's a song for pilgrims making that, that difficult journey, and yet, it's a happy song. It's a happy song. They're making a difficult journey just as we make a difficult journey from this life to the next, and yet, they sing a happy song and instruct that we should sing a happy song as well. Not every moment in the Christian life is enjoyable or happy per se, and that's why there is real place, legitimate place, a right place for lament in the Christian life. And as we're going to see, there's even a subtle hint of lament in this psalm. But the overriding and predominant key that we sing as Christians will be a major key, not a minor one, a major key. So let's consider those things uh, I want us to see that the psalm is split into two sections, the first three verses and then the latter three. And the first three verses look back and recount the believer's happy past. The believer's happy past. We read this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. This language of being restored back to Zion uh, would seem to place this uh, psalm at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the return from captivity in, in Babylon. There was a land, right, the promised land, that was, that was guaranteed to the people of Israel ever since the days of Abraham. And after being slaves in Egypt for centuries, they finally are brought into that place. It's flowing with milk and honey. And even as they enjoy it, it doesn't take long for them to begin to rebel and to complain and to sin against God. And what does God do? He, send, he sends prophet after prophet after prophet warning them, if you keep this kind of behavior up, I will remove you from the land. There will be a, a strict punishment. I'll send an enemy to capture you. And that's exactly what happens. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, carts them off to Babylon, where they remain for 70 long years until Cyrus the Great makes his proclamation where they can return to their homeland. And this psalm is written with that context in mind. They're, they are back home. They are restored in that sense. And this brings with it a delirious happiness and, and a, a sense of relief and joy. Their joy is almost unreal. They say, we are like those who, who dream. 
That is, what they were experiencing was so amazing, it's like something that beforehand they had only ever known in a dream state before. You know those, those dreams where, where to wake up from is only, can only be a disappointment, and you want to go back, and you want to live in that world. I want to I live in that dream. That's what they're saying. Our lives are, are like a dream. But, but did you see the difference here? It's not, it's not like you and I where where we have this great dream and we want to get back to it because it's, it's not reality. For them, this is reality. They aren't dreaming. This is real. The restoration is real. Friends, this is the beauty of being a Christian. This is one of the beauties of being a Christian, that God promises us restoration. He, he promises salvation, fullness, satisfaction, and it all seems too good to be true. But it is true. It is true. Our God is the God who is, who is not only able, but he's eager. He, he, he's willing and able to give to us far more abundantly than all we could ever ask or dream up, imagine. One pastor puts it like this. The goodness of God is as great as the person of God. It is therefore infinite and eternal. Just as God is infinite and eternal, his goodness is infinite and eternal. And so when you think you have understood all there is to know about God's goodness, God will surprise you with still more, for God is always better than we can imagine. Living before God, we could say, is to live the dream, the greatest dream of all. And the joy of God's restoration was something that could not be contained by the Israelites. It says there in verse Two, that their mouths were filled with laughter. It's not a chuckle. It's a deep roar of delight. And they have to shout about it, too. And on our tongues are the shouts of joy. If you were to be dropped into Israel at this time, uh, it, it would have been the scene of a party, right? There's, there's laughing, and, and there's singing, and there's happiness, and it's all because of the grace of God. The grace of God to restore them and to put a new song in their mouths. Matthew Henry says that they who were once laughed at now laugh. They who were once laughed at now laugh. And it was the laughter of joy in God. In other words, the restoration of God turns everything on its head. It, 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 it turns everything upside down. For these Israelites, they were at one time... Uh, scorned and mocked and derided by their enemies, laughed at by their enemies, but then God restores them, and now they are filled with, with laughter. Laughter, uh, and it's the laughter of joy. They're not mocking their enemies now. They're not laughing at them. They're simply overcome by the goodness of God. And so now they laugh and they sing and they shout and they need to. The joy is so exuberant that it can't be contained. Have you ever experienced a feeling like that? Uh, you know, where an emotion is so strong that it, it needs an outlet. There's a story of uh, a young woman named Mariah Landers. Uh, grew up in California raised by a single mom and she never knew her father one time when she was five she found a birthday card addressed to her from her father that her mom had thrown in the trash, hoping her daughter would not find it. But this only uh, made Mariah more curious and made her want to learn about this man that she had never met. 
uh, and who is still living. He's out there somewhere, and, and throughout her whole life as she grew up in that home, her mother only told her one thing about her father, and that is that he was from Jamaica. And so when Mariah grows up, when she leaves her home, she buys a ticket to Jamaica, and she goes on an exploration. She has no idea if it will pan out, but she meets two locals who volunteered to help her look. I do believe at that time she had a last name to go off of. Um, so she has two friends who say that they'll go help her, and they come back to her one day, and they say that they have some bad news, and they have good news. And the bad news is, of course, that her father was dead. And Mariah recounts uh, her story to a journalist by saying this. I started crying. I started sobbing. And they reach over and grab my hands and said, well, the good news is you have a grandfather, seven aunts and uncles, lots and lots of cousins, and you have ten brothers and sisters. And I just started laughing, she says. It was this emotion that I never felt before. I didn't know that you could cry from deep sorrow one moment, but then be laughing from deep joy the next. That's the psalm. That's the emotion of this psalm. Mourning has turned to dancing. Tears have become laughter. Just as Mariah was overcome by this good news and she can't stop laughing, the psalmist is saying that Israel is so overjoyed by the good news of God's restoration that they can't stop laughing either. We do know that feeling of, uh, of being so overwhelmed by an emotion that we need an outlet for it. We need to express it in some way. But let's be honest. More often than not, is the emotion not pain or anger? And is the outlet that it finds not um, screaming, perhaps cursing? More often than not, the delightful shout of joy is not on our lips, but the grating scream of rage. But friends, as Christians, the sound that should be on our lips should be happy and not harsh. So look at verse 2 and ask yourself, does, ask yourself, does this describe your disposition? Does this describe your attitude? It should. If you're a Christian, it should. Consider that you've received the greatest restoration imaginable. You've been rescued from slavery to Satan. You've been rescued from the grave. God has taken you from six feet under, from hell itself, and he's planted your feet on the firm foundation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's the most ridiculous restoration imaginable. Why would we receive this? We're nothing. We're dust. We're, we're, we're traitors and, 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 and rebels. That's the only thing we can claim to our credit that we have betrayed the creator who brought us into the world, but that same creator, that same God loves us so much that he would die for us to take us from dust to glory. It's a twist. It's a turnaround. And it's all for you and me. Do you recognize that? Does that not make you want to laugh with, with joy? Martin Luther says that that we must earnestly endeavor to learn this practice, this practice of being happy and joyful and making it known. Because one of the reasons that we're to be filled with happiness in the things of God is that it's a powerful witness. Did you see that there in the latter half of verse 2? 
right? Uh, we're, we're laughing and, and we're, we're singing joyful songs. And then it says, then they said, among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for them. It's a witness. Science has, you know, proven that laughter is, is literally contagious. There was one study that was done a couple years ago where, where um, this scientist uh, had several subjects listened to uh, on a handheld device, pre-recorded laughter. I think they were 20-second clips. No context. There were no jokes, no subs or anything. It's just 20 seconds of people laughing. And invariably, everybody who held that handheld device and listened to those 20 seconds of laughter started laughing too. And you just can't help it, right? That's what's going on here. The nations are saying, the Lord has done great things for them. Friends, your attitude... Your demeanor is one of the most powerful ways you can witness to the gospel uh, to a world that is so sad and so lost. A, a gloomy, pessimistic believer can't spread that infectious, joyous laughter of having been redeemed by Christ. And so you need to ask yourself, does the world look at your life and see that you have that missing piece? You know, you, you have that something special does the world look at you and recognize, well, maybe you don't have the money and maybe you don't have the nice house or the nice car or the whatever. That's the world's definition of living the dream. But do they look at you and do you make them question that definition? Do you make them say, well, maybe we've got this thing wrong? Does how you live point to the reality that the Lord has done great things for you? That's the foundation of this psalm, the first half. Exploring the believer's happy past based upon the great things that God has done for them. And it's the reality of the happy past that can ground and, and root a confidence in a happy future, the believer's happy future, which is the, themes, which is the theme of verses 4 through 6. You see there's a transition there in verse 4. Uh, to direct address to God. Now, now the psalmist is, is not speaking about what God has done, but now he's speaking to God. It's a prayer. It's a pleading prayer for God to do what? Look at the text. W what is the psalmist asking God to do? Well, actually, that God would do the very thing that he's already done. Restore Israel. That's interesting, isn't it? Don't just pass over that. Recognize what's happening here. There, there's something that we need to wrestle with here to make sense of this text. How could it be that the psalm begins with praising God for restoring the fortunes of Israel, but then it turns to a prayer that God would restore those uh, fortunes? Uh, how could it be that, that the psalm begins talking about how happy believers are, but then it turns into a prayer asking God to, to make believers happy? Well, again, we need to remember the time period of this song. The happiness that is spoken of earlier in the first three verses is because God has brought the people back to Jerusalem. He's restored them. But is that, is that all they needed to be back in their homeland? Is that, was that a full restoration? No, it wasn't. Being in Jerusalem wasn't enough. In fact, in the opening of Nehemiah, we're told that there were people in the province who had survived the exile, and it says they were in great trouble and shame. And we might wonder, well, why? Why should they be in trouble and shame? They've survived the, the, the exile. They got to stay back home. Well, it says, because the walls of Jerusalem have been broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. 
So just being in that area isn't a full restoration. And so that's what Nehemiah goes to do. He goes to, to partially complete that restoration, to rebuild the city. But, but, but even then, even after the city is rebuilt, even after the temple is rebuilt, is the nation restored entirely? No. What are they missing? A king. There's still no king. And therefore, without a king... They cannot be rightly constituted as a kingdom. They're still not whole. They, the restoration is still incomplete. And I want to share with you this evening two things I think that are important to take away from this. Two things here in closing. The first is to notice that all of that backstory that we just covered about the restoration, about the exile, and about the great distress. And let's be honest, the lament, the heartache, the heartbreak of not having a king, of not being a, a, a fully-fledged kingdom, all of that backstory, that tragic backstory, is tucked into just one single clause in this psalm. Verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord. It's all, it's all just in that one little clause. Every other verse in this psalm has the classic markings of a song of praise or, or, or a hymn of praise, but hidden here is the unashamed truth of lament. The unashamed truth that life is hard. And so do you see the point? Do you understand, fellow pilgrims? In a fallen world, the song for you and me, the song for pilgrims is, is a song that acknowledges the harsh realities of life. It does acknowledge those realities, but ultimately, the, those minor notes in, the, in, in that, that song, they are drowned out by the major overtones of God's graciousness and God's restoration, God's goodness. This psalm, it's a subtle hint of lament, but it, it's there nonetheless. We're not supposed to pretend that everything is, is happy-go-lucky. The happiness and joy that God's after in, in our lives is not a naive or glib happiness. It, it's, a, it's a deep uh, joy that can still recognize the seriousness of life and the trials of life, but also see that all those things will ultimately be drowned out by God's goodness. And for my music lovers here, uh, there's actually a, a wonderful example of this truth in uh, music theory, something called a, a Picardy third. Now, if you're not a music lover, stick with me. I'll try to make it as, as understandable as possible. But uh, a Picardy third is where you end a song that is in a minor key with a major chord. So something that's been in minor this whole time ends with a major chord. So let's say the key is in C minor. Normally a key in uh, C minor would end with a C minor triad. So that's C, E flat, G, right? C, E flat, G. But what Picardy does, he comes, he makes one subtle change, one semitonal shift upwards in that third in the chord where the E flat becomes an E natural. And it's a major chord. So one semitonal pitch change and the entire affect of the song is transformed. Although you might have been hearing minor the whole time, you leave with major ringing in your ears. And that's the Christian life. No matter what tragedies we go through, no matter what suffering life holds, all it takes is one tiny change for the, for the whole thing to be cast in a new light. And, and what is that tiny change? 
It's faith in Jesus Christ. That's all it takes to take all of our sadness to gladness, all of our sorrow to joy. Friends, without Christ, the song of our life can be nothing more than than a a dismal dirge uh, with each verse just recounting all of the hardships that we have gone through. But when we have Christ, our song becomes a, a song of joyful praise and the upbeat chorus that we return to over and over again is that we know that for those who love God, he works all things for their good. You see how it just turns everything on its head. Even, even the very real sufferings, the very real laments, they're cast in a different light when you have Jesus, knowing that God is using those things for our good. And so that's one important thing to note from this second half of Psalm 126, that lament in our pilgrimage is inevitable, but it will always ultimately be overcome by Praise. And the second thing to learn, the final thing to learn from these verses, is that they situate us, us, right, right here, you and me here today, they situate us in, in the big picture of God's plan. These verses help us to understand where we're at in everything. In the context, this is sung by Israel as they've returned to their uh, homeland, so that's a partial restoration, but it's also sung as they lack a king in a kingdom, so it's not a full restoration. We're in that same place. We call it an already not yet sometimes in theology, right? God has restored us to himself already in the gospel. We have been brought from death to life. Where's our kingdom? It's not here. It's in another world. Where's our king? He's not here either. Paul explains it well in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul there is is describing Christ as, as the king, the king who is in heaven, and we're waiting for him to come for that full restoration when we will make, when he will make us like himself, when we will be fully conformed to his glory and holiness. And when that happens, friends, when Jesus comes again, the happiness that we have now will grow exponentially. And so we are happy now. We, 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 we have to be for all the good things that God has done for us and for the good things that God has promised us. We are overjoyed. We are those who, who are, whose mouths are filled with laughter and, and whose, upon whose tongues are shouts of joy. We're overjoyed, but we're not perfectly content, right? Because we're not home yet. That's why this is a song for pilgrims, for people traveling on the way, So do you feel that tension, that already not yet pilgrimage? You should. You shouldn't be perfectly content here. You're not perfected in grace yet. You still lose your temper. You still cave to temptation. You still are in love with the world, still consumed with worry and fear. All these things that still plague us now, and we we are to cry out to to God in that that prayer, uh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Not Lord Jesus... Hang back, because I'm having a really great time here. Just give, give me a few more years here. 
I'm really enjoying life where I just got a boat. You know, I'm watching the grandkids grow up and having a good time here. My, my kid just got into the college of his dreams. Lord Jesus, come in a couple years. No, we're not content here. So we say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We should pray for God to restore us, not just to life in Christ, which happens here and now, but to conform us and restore us to the very image and fullness of Christ, which can only perfectly happen in the world to come. The psalmist describes the glory of that age with some powerful imagery, doesn't he? Restore us like streams in the Negev. The Negev is one of the driest regions in the Middle East. Is there anything that captures this picture of poverty to riches, sadness to gladness, better than seeing an arid, an arid parched land just, just uh, overflowing with fresh water? It goes on to speak about our, our working and, and even our weeping here in this life. That's, that's a reality. But ultimately, tears don't get the final say. Right? As I believe you heard this morning, God is keeping track of our tears. He keeps them in his bottle. He, he knows the suffering that we go through so that one day all of our sorrow all of our sadness, all of those tears will be wiped away and there will be in its place happiness, joy. Essentially, the psalm is ending with this remark. As it, as it looks forward to the future in verses four through six, it's ending with this remark. If you think God is good now, you ain't seen nothing yet. Amen? I mean, that's good news, friends. If you think God is good now, just wait. I mean, we actually read about that, didn't we? That's, that's the lesson of Ephesians 2, one of the lessons of Ephesians 2, right? Where it tells us that in the coming ages, not right now, but in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace to us. We're still waiting for it. We receive so much now, but there's going to be more. James Montgomery Boyce, he has a beautiful hymn based on Ephesians 2, and this came to mind as, as I heard Pastor Dale read this, and, and the verse, or the stanza of that hymn that's capturing that line goes like this. Uh, he lifted me up to the heavenly realms where seated with Christ I am free. In ages to come, he will show me more grace. So great is his kindness to me. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're waiting for. Oh, think about what Isaiah and Paul say about the world to come. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. The thought of man can't even imagine. You can't even dream it. You think your dreams are good. No, you can't even conjure up what God has prepared for those who love him. Friends, this is life with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Can you even wait do you know Jesus today, my dear brother or sister? Do you know the happiness of the gospel? My invitation to you this evening, if you do not know Christ, is simply this. Put your faith in Jesus, the one who restores broken, helpless sinners, and you will be living the dream. Let's pray. Gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, a word that we need to hear. As there is so much 
going on in our lives in this world, in this, in this time right now with an economic crisis, with a pandemic, with, with civil unrest that could make us gloomy, scared, depressed. Lord, would you remind us of, that we, uh, of the happiness that is ours because we have Jesus and we have him right now. Lord, would we be as Christians those who make a mark upon the world because we are markedly different from the world. We are not down and depressed. We are joyful. But Lord, help us also not to be too comfortable here. Remind us that our citizenship is in heaven. That's our true kingdom. And from there we await our king when he will restore us completely and fully where all the sadnesses of this world will fade away where our tears will be wiped away where there will be no more grief no more sadness where death will be no more Lord we long for that day of total restoration we long for it with joy and with gladness because we know what you promise you will accomplish and so we do pray now Lord come quickly Lord Jesus come quickly amen